This is Kale Clark, and this is The Faith Explained on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio mobile app. So good to be with you once again as we continue our journey through St. Paul's letter to the Romans. And we, we sort of left off in chapter 13 of the letter, and he had just got done talking about verses 1 through 7, the need to obey legitimate government authorities. And, and this is a controversial topic for sure in our modern age, and there's a little bit of tension here. Because what do you do if your government is, quite frankly, evil? A great modern example, of course, is Nazi Germany. Uh, What do you do if you're a Catholic Christian living in Nazi Germany? Well, certainly many Catholics stood up to Hitler and his evil regime. They paid for it with their lives. Blessed Franz. I also think about the Protestant minister, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who bravely uh, lost his life fighting against the Nazi ethos. And so civil disobedience at times is called for, is in fact a virtue. But it's it's just fascinating that St. Paul talks about this idea of obeying civil leaders, because who is the civil leadership in his time? It's the Roman Emperor Nero. Remember, he's writing to Rome, the very heart, the very seat of the empire. And who is on the throne? It's Nero Caesar, the mark of the beast. 666. In the book of Revelation, you wonder, what does that refer to? The the Antichrist, some figure at the end of time, and no doubt there will be an Antichrist, a big one, if you will, at the end of days before the return of Jesus. But don't forget that anyone who is in opposition to the reign of our Lord Jesus Christ is in some sense an Antichrist. And it's sobering to think about the fact that you and I have played that role at times whenever we've chosen sin over God's truth. This is why we have to go to confession. So we have to be Christians. We have to be little Christ. That's what the word Christian means, not Antichrist. But the name Nero Caesar, if you add up the letters of his name, and if every letter is given a numerical value, his name adds up to 666, Nero Caesar. And that's exactly who is referred to in particular in the book of Revelation. He was reigning in Rome at that time. And He hadn't yet unleashed that wicked persecution against the church that resulted in the death of St. Paul, in the martyrdom of St. Paul and St. Peter as well at that same time. Of course, Paul's still writing the letter. He's still alive. But nonetheless, it is amazing to think that that he would suggest obeying the Caesar if it's not in conflict with the law of God. But, But sometimes the civil leadership is in conflict with God's law. And... There's a tension here that, that, yes, God does set up rulers uh, in order to further his plans. And he can also take them out, too. Uh, in the book of Isaiah, there's talk about the Persian king Cyrus, the great king Cyrus. And I'm not talking about Cyrus Simcoe, the producer of the Patrick Madrid show, although I call him King Cyrus, too. But the Persian monarch Cyrus, uh, even though he thought maybe he came to power through his own... <laughs> Je ne sais quoi, through his own talents, through his own intelligence, through his own military capabilities. In fact, God was behind the scenes and he allowed him to get to the, the, the point of influence that he, that he arrived at. He was God's anointed, in a sense, and he, the anointed one uh, for his time. And that, that word anointed also means Messiah. So God allowed him to rule in order to further his plan. For the world, but there are times when secular rulers certainly are in opposition to God, His ways, and His people. And the great example that Saint Paul obviously knows about, and you and I know about too, 
the Maccabean Revolt, the books of the Maccabees, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, and there are other Maccabee books that didn't make it into the Bible, 3rd and 4th Maccabees, for example. But this is all about what happened in the 2nd century B.C., very shortly before the time of Jesus himself. The wicked, Seleucid ruler, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, that's what he called himself, Epiphanes, that means the manifestation of God. Think about the Feast of the Epiphany. And he tried to destroy the faith of the people of God. He outlawed the Torah. He outlawed essentially the Bible. Book burnings were common. He forbid the Jews to circumcise their male children. He stopped the temple sacrifices. He, in fact, had a pig, a filthy animal, to the Jewish people. He had a pig sacrificed on the high altar of the temple to the pagan god Zeus. This is an absolute abomination. This is what the Bible refers to as the abomination that causes desolation. Uh, Jesus even talks about this in the gospel. He tried to get people to disobey the, the kosher food laws of the Old Covenant. Well, there was a revolt. Uh, Mattathias, the aged priest, Judas Maccabeus, they led kind of an asymmetrical warfare. I don't know if it's the first example of guerrilla warfare in the world's history, but it was one of the first. They went into the hills and they fought against a much, much more powerful army and they prevailed with God's help. So Paul is well aware of this, that at times God's people, they do have to resist pagan rulers, especially when they've given over to evil. You have to fight the power sometimes. But I think sometimes when we look at Paul talking about the need to obey the government, we also have to look at the fact that he's writing, remember, in the first century world, to Rome in particular. Now, some people think Paul is going easy on Rome because he himself is a Roman citizen. Don't forget, that helped him out a lot in his ministry. If you read the Acts of the Apostles, his Roman citizenship got him out of a lot of jams, uh, got him out of jail at times, uh, saved him from death. It opened a lot of doors to preach the gospel. And there's the case of uh, when he was in Achaia, the governor there, people didn't want Paul to preach the gospel. Some of Paul's fellow Jews, you know, said to the to the governor, "You got to stop this guy." And he's like, "I'm not getting involved in this. You, know, you guys deal with your religious disputes on your own time and in your own way." He, he sort of preached religious tolerance. He did a good job, this governor, by not interfering in this and letting Paul go. But but Paul is not blindly subservient to Rome. He, he, he has his eyes wide open here when it comes to the Roman Empire. Don't forget that the person that St. Paul cared about more than anyone in the world, Jesus Christ, the Lord of his life, don't forget that Jesus was murdered by Roman officials. He died on a Roman cross. So he knows very well how, how the government can at times become very, very unjust. So he is able to see the good and bad points if Paul were living in uh, the 21st century in the United States, uh, he wouldn't be a Biden believer nor a MAGA Republican in, in the sense that many people today look at their political leaders and they think that they can do no wrong. No matter what camp you're in, uh, they don't see the flaws or they don't want to admit the flaws of, of their own side's position. But Paul is able to be self-critical. He's able to look at things from an objective point of view. Another thing was going on in, in that time was that there was a there was a in, the Roman historian Tacitus writes about this the greatest Roman historian by the way Tacitus maybe he wrote about Jesus and he also told us that 
in in the decade of the 50s, and, and this is sort of around the time Paul's writing, there was a huge revolt of the people about paying taxes to Rome. And in fact, there was a revolt that happened in the year 58 AD. So all of this is kind of in the background when they're, when they're, Paul is really answering their question, should we obey the government here? And he, and he says, yeah, like, I mean, under normal circumstances, yes, because the government is God's agent. But there are times, there are times when they can go off the rails. So maybe, maybe he's only, he's, he's not presenting the other side explicitly about the need to fight against evil governments because it's possible. Some speculate that there were members of the church in Rome who were already doing a pretty good job of presenting that case. There might have been some zealots that were in the crowd. There might have been some members of the zealot party that were part of the church at Rome. We know that Jesus even had, as one of his apostles, Simon the Zealot. The zealots wanted to create an armed rebellion against the Romans, wanted to start a war. The famous Sicarii, the dagger men, they would hide in crowds, come out and just knife political opponents and officials and Roman citizens and soldiers. Uh, it, was, it was guerrilla warfare at its finest. This guy was a Simon was taken from these ranks and made one of the apostles. And Jesus obviously, you know, told him to dial it down a little bit. But, but I, it's possible that there was already enough people in the Roman Church who was kind of against the government. That Paul's just kind of sort of counterbalancing, presenting the other side. I, I don't know if that's the case or not, but it's it's a good suggestion. But what about us? What about right now in, in our world? We we do know that. Evil people, evil dictators, evil governments need to be stopped. When our political rulers contravene the law of God, uh, that's not a good thing. Hitler has to be stopped. You can't let him go on a murderous rampage and take over all of Europe, take over the world. He must be stopped. Men need to raise arms to stop him. And and so this answers the question. And I, and I have a brother-in-law who served in the military, many other family members who served in the military. They often ask the question, can I be a Catholic and be a soldier at the same time or, or be a, a police officer? Absolutely. And this is where Paul says that the government does not wield the sword for nothing. There's a legitimate use of self-defense on a national level, at a civic level. But on a, on a personal level, on a personal level, we also have to to look at situations where we may not be brandishing weapons, but we still have to protest injustice. In the 1960s in the United States, Martin Luther King Jr., the Civil Rights Movement, many Catholic priests marched arm-in-arm with with Dr. King and his supporters in a nonviolent protest, civil disobedience, if you will. And if they had turned to violence, if they fought uh, violence with violence, their cause would have been obliterated. And in our modern time, we think about the greatest civil rights issue of our day, the issue of abortion. We can't resort to murdering the murderers. We can't firebomb abortion clinics. We can't take out abortionists, even though they're taking out innocent human life, innocent children. We can't fight it that way. We have to drown evil in an abundance of good, as St. Paul talks about. This is why we prayed millions of memoraries. We're on track for a billion memoraries at Relevant Radio for life. And we've seen a row or overturned almost in, in the secular news. will never, will never talk about this, but the power of prayer had a big part to play in that and it will continue to do so. So the, these are some questions that we have to think about in our mind as we assess these issues in our own time. You're listening to the faith explained on relevant radio. And this is our series on Romans. Can you handle the truth? 
I'm your host, Kale Clark. All right, let's look at the next section here of Romans. Let's look at the next section here. And this is Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not kill, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this sentence. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. All right, so after this discourse on, on, on politics and government, and some people, that's why some people think Paul didn't write the previous section. He did. There's no manuscript of Romans that doesn't have it. He, he kind of gets back on track to what he was talking about before, how to, how to love. And, and, he, and he mentions in this first line here in, in verse 8, let no debt remain outstanding. Oh, man, we talk about debt. Oh, man, that's a huge problem in the modern world, especially in America. Uh, we, we're always worried about debt. We're always worried about mortgages. We're always worried about student debt. We're always worried about interest rates, the Fed. What are they going to do? Is my money going to have any purchasing power in five years? All of that is not in play here. That's not really what he's talking about. And people have tried to use this passage when he says, let no debt remain outstanding. They, they tried to make this into some sort of a manifesto on Catholic money management to the point where some people say, well, I'm not going to buy anything unless I can pay for it in cash, whether it's a car or a house. And Paul says, let no debt remain outstanding. I can't take on any debt. I can't have a credit card. That's not what he's talking about here. But if you want to do that, if that's your approach, buy pay everything in cash and make sure you have the money before you buy something, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. That's not what he's talking about here. Uh, but what is he talking about? He's talking about the debt to love. The debt to love. And, and, and that's ironic because he says, hey, that, that debt can never really be paid off. That can never really be paid off. Here, here's what the early church writer Origen said. He said this, quote, let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love. So basically, he is saying, yeah, pay off your debts for sure. He's not saying don't take on any debt, but make sure you pay your debts. Let your only debt that is unpaid be that of love a debt which you should always be attempting to discharge in full, but you will never succeed in discharging it. Now, that's a great quote. And um, Origen, of course, was a favorite of Pope Benedict XVI. He did, he did some general audiences about Origen, even though he wasn't canonized as a saint. He still had a lot of interesting things to say. Uh, if you want some good spiritual reading, check out uh, Pope Benedict's talks on Origen. You can look it up online. But, but this is interesting, this idea that we can never fully repay this debt to love one another. Because he says, hey, if you love your fellow man, your, your fellow human being, you have fulfilled the law. Jesus's parable about the Good Samaritan is a, is a really great example of this. Who is my neighbor? As Paul writes, whoever loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Whoever loves the other has fulfilled the law. Well, who is my neighbor? And this is the point of the Good Samaritan parable. Everybody, everyone is your neighbor. You got to love all. You got to serve all. That's the motto of the Hard Rock Cafe. And that's some great theology as well. Love all, serve all. That's really the message of Jesus. And so this really is Paul's version of what Jesus talks about in the gospel in Matthew chapter 22. What is the greatest commandment? What is the greatest commandment? To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. You can do this. You have fulfilled the law. 
And so <laughs> St. Augustine said, um, a very famous saying of his, love and do whatever you want. You can do whatever you want as long as you fulfill this love of God and neighbor. Because if you're truly loving, you're never going to hurt the other person. You're going to automatically fulfill all of the commandments because you'd be seeking the good of the human person in, in loving them as we love God. Love does no harm to its neighbor. That's how Paul puts it in verse 10 here. And so this is really, really important for us to know. As one writer said, if we are able to live the great commandment, love God and neighbor, if we can really live the great commandment and practice the great commission to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, we can live the great commandment, practice the great commission, that'll make a great church. That'll make a great church. Uh, that's boiling, boiling it down to its absolute essence. So loving God and loving others, this is what Jesus taught. And it wasn't a new teaching. Others taught this. Uh, there's a Jewish ta- uh, document called the Testament of Issachar. And it says, keep the law of God, my children, achieve integrity, live without malice, not tinkering with God's commands or your neighbor's affairs. Love the Lord and your neighbor. Be compassionate toward poverty and sickness. And there are other uh, Jewish writers who wrote along those lines. And that makes sense because Jesus' teaching isn't, out of thin air. It's nothing that people haven't heard before. If Jesus' teaching was that radical, it's a complete break with tradition. Nobody would have thought he was the, he was the Messiah. Nobody, thousands of Jews wouldn't have followed him as Messiah. But what is new about Jesus' teaching is the way that he tells it and his absolute authority over the law. He, he says that the Son of Man has authority over the Sabbath, over the law. This is all over the gospel. See Mark chapter 2. See Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has authority over all of the law. He gives the actual right interpretation of the law. And this is what we have to teach people. This is what it's all about. So the Ten Commandments, the law, never goes out of style. Um, they are still an authority for believers. And this is, this is something we have to, to, to maintain because this idea of love, when, he, when Paul says, whatever commandments there may be are summed up in this one rule, love your neighbor as yourself. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Some people think we need to forget the law so that we can simply love, show love to people. The laws, rules, and regulations. No, no. And this usually comes in the context of human relationships uh, of a romantic nature, let's put it that way. But, but no, the law is love. The law of God is an expression of his love. He created the human person. He knows how we work. He knows what's best for us. The Decalogue, the commandments are love. It's the right interpretation that Jesus gives. So this is really, really important for us to know. So he wants sincere love. And you might think, well, I've fallen short on that that front. I've tried to love uh, others. And, you know, I wonder if I don't even like them. How can I love sincerely as Paul commands here? Well, here's the deal. Fake it till you make it. Like the uh, YouTube video from a very famous TED Talk by Amy Cuddy. Fake it till you make it. Act like you love the person and let the body kind of educate the soul and the mind. Everything else will follow. The feelings. Don't don't try to start with the feelings. Um, 
C.S. Lewis, the great writer, once met a man who was thinking about leaving his wife, thinking about divorcing his wife. Why? He said, because I don't love her anymore. He said, go home and love your wife. But you don't, you didn't hear me. I just said I don't love her anymore. Go home and love your wife. Love is an action verb. And this is what we have to keep in mind. All right, we have run out of time here on The Faith Explained, but we will have much more on our next episode. Please join me on Relevant Radio tomorrow, 23 and a half hours from now, for the next episode of The Faith Explained. Missed an episode? Go to the Relevant Radio app, stream the podcast, share them with a friend. God bless you. I'll catch you in the next one.